This morning's Old Testament scripture reading is from the book of Hosea, chapter 14, verses 1 through 9. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls to devour to our lips. Assyria shall not save us, we will not ride on, on horses, and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like a lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and fall beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. And the New Testament scripture reading is from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 through 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This is the word of the Lord. Gomer and Hosea 
allegorical. Because they can begin to imagine that the God of all creation, this holy God, would have his prophet to marry a prostitute. Some folks, as they read the book of Hosea, they read it, of course, existentially, experientially, inserting them into the text. They, they go into the text and they struggle with the thought that God would have them marry a prostitute. But let me give you a word of comfort and encouragement as you step through the book of Hosea. You do not get to be the prophet. The covenant people of God are in the book of Hosea, the prostitute. And so when we think about that struggle, and when we lean into the struggle of even imagining the prophet and the prostitute together, what we see in Hosea's life is what scripture or rather theologian Bible teachers call a speech act. A speech act. So that the life of Hosea is acting out the message that God has for his people. As we see Gomer going wayward, and Hosea going out to get his wife, we see the people of God going wayward, and the great faithfulness of God chasing them down. We see Hosea over and over again forgiving his wife, even to the point of, at one point, in his text, purchasing her off of the slave block. It's a picture of God purchasing us off the slave block of sin, bringing us out of a place of bondage, and bringing us into relationship with Him. But beyond those beautiful pictures of God's faithfulness, you get to see this other picture concerning sin. I think in other books of the Bible, like Isaiah, I absolutely love Isaiah. I have to love it. I spent 11 years preaching for it. That's not hyperbole. 11 years. <laughs> in Isaiah, you see God in all this supremacy and sovereignty as the uh, cosmic judge of all things. And so when you see the people of God committing sin against God, you see it as cosmic treason. You see it high-handed treason. When you come to Hosea, it's more intimate than that. It's like a husband and a wife in a relationship having devoted everything to one another. Having one of the spouses commit adultery in their bed. And so sin takes on a different characteristic, a different feel when it comes to the book of Hosea. It's seen, it's seen as betrayal of the highest order. It's seen as the, the admixture, the invasion of foreign substance in an otherwise pure relationship. It's seen as one party making themselves absolutely vulnerable while the other party takes advantage. And 
so when we see that depicted for us in the book of Hosea, we begin to see our own sin differently. So we see Gomer take on her adulterous lovers and act out her illicit affairs with them, understanding that it is a picture of us as our hearts are prone to wander. We start to see ourselves differently before the light, the love, and holiness of God. Israel is depicted as the gomer, the prostitute. Israel actually fleshed out, they fleshed out their sins by giving themselves wholeheartedly over to other lovers, other gods. And the interesting thing about their idolatrous practice is that they don't forget the God of glory. They don't, they don't forget the God who redeemed them from Egypt. They just mix them in. A little bit of Jehovah or Yahweh, a little bit of Baal, a little bit of giving attention to the practices of honoring God, while also giving themselves to the fertility cults. Mixing in. But not only were they mixing in religious, idolatrous practices, but they began to see politics in a whole different light. Political power, political alliances became a means of salvation for them. And so their hearts would be turned to Egypt, or their hearts would be turned to Assyria when the going got rough. Trusting them for salvation. And in the midst of it all, and in the midst of all of their faithlessness and their decadence, we see this overture that continues to be extended to them. And it seems like something that you can read and, and pass over. Only as you go from the beginning of the book to the end of the book, you continue to see it over and over and over again. It starts to reverberate and resonate and echo through the book. It provides us with a sort of picturesque description. At this point, you're wondering, well, what is it? To build a little bit more suspense. <laughs> it's a particular key word that I have in mind. I won't make you guess it. It's a key word that appears 22 times in 21 verses. And so it seems like it's overwhelming that the Lord is looking to bring this to our attention. In fact, the word appears in this chapter, this 14th chapter, five of those 22 times. As you look down at verse 1, you see the word return. And then again, in verse 2, you see it. Uh, presented to us again, return. And in verse 4, you see it two times, and the ESV is translated apostasy, turn from. And then it's presented, turn from, again. And return again in verse 7. It's sort of a grammatical and thematic way that the Lord is saying that the, the baseline that holds all of this together is a call to repentance. That's the overture that he's extending to his people. Repentance. Return to me. 
chapter 1 on following. You expect things to go completely different. Why is he sticking with this people? I mean, they're off the hook. It's unbelievable that they would be this way. It's to the point that when you get to chapter 13, you think that's absolutely the end. Chapter 13 brings us to this high point, this climax concerning judgment. It's God's way of saying, the culmination of all my warnings are coming together in chapter 13 to tell you that you will be, to you will be torn away from your homes. A number of you will die. And you will find your place in Assyria. As he talked to them over and over again about this exile that was coming, he likened the exile to Assyria as a sort of exodus in reverse. So when you look through and you see him making mention of them going back to Egypt, he's spiritually speaking of them going back to Assyria. And Assyria for them would be a type of Egypt. It would be their place of bondage. And then you expect, okay, I've read chapter 13, they go into bondage, they're going to Assyria, but somehow, some way, in this wonderful way in chapter 13, you see this small hint of the gospel there, and you think, that can't mean what I think it is, because it's all this judgment surrounding it. But you're like, oh, okay, we've reached the high point of the book, obviously, because judgment is where they should be finding themselves. So you expect to turn a page and go right over to Joel and blow them all over you have. chapter 14. And in chapter 14, for me, the prophet Hosea seems to put on a different hat. The hat he seems to wear, I, I, I know you're going to make me think, I, I don't see that, brother. The hat he's wearing is a relationship coach. Israel has messed things up royally. Absolutely messed things up. At one point in the book, the Lord says, I will withdraw from you. So as to say that I'm going to give you a sense of the distance that your sin is creating between us. So as you feel that, you understand that everything's not right in our relationship. I won't put anybody on the spot, but some people in some other place might be able to have this testimony. They might be able to have the testimony where in relationship with their spouse, things just didn't go right. Maybe you said something out of turn, you assumed something, you let him or her out of the decision-making process, and then all of a sudden, the whole atmosphere shifted. You came into the room, hey, how you doing, babe? And your greeting was, fine, and you? <laughs> you're taking a drive, you're going out to the restaurant or on some other uh, trip together, and all of a sudden, your spouse finds the passenger side window riveting and doesn't look at you at all. You feel the distance. You feel the coldness. And the Lord seems to do something like that to stir his people into feeling 
that there's something wrong. And so as Hosea puts on the hat of the relationship coach, he's looking to work out reconciliation in the relationship between God and his people. And I can almost imagine in sort of a fictitious way the collective people about going to Hosea and sharing with him the story and trying to find out what the next steps are and this whole thing of reconciliation. What does that even look like, Hosea? And so Hosea responds in the following way by saying, it looks like returning. Returning. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. It's intentional that he refers to them as Israel, not as Jacob. He doesn't refer to them collectively as Ephraim. But as he talks to them or speaks to them and, and, and applies that label to them, Israel, it is intending to bring to mind the covenant relationship that they share with the Lord Most High. What's the first step? The first step is you're going in the wrong direction. Turn and go to the Lord your God. He follows it up by giving them a reality check. He tells them, look at all of the ruin around you. The things that you've gotten to be, uh, I don't know, comfortable with. And he says that as he says for your son. The word their stumble does not convey the idea of them just tripping and sort of gathering themselves. It's a picture of falling into ruin. You have fallen into a place of ruin that has led you down into exile. Return to the Lord your God. You've suffered because of your iniquity. As he speaks to them, he wants them to come to grips with where they stand concerning their relationship with the Lord. He wants them to say the same things concerning the state that they're in. You stumble because of your iniquity. The issue is sin. My sin, I'm sin. And so it's almost as if we have embedded in the text there a call to confession. To say the same things as, to say the same things that God has to say concerning sin. And so as he points them into the right direction and calls them to return, the thought could be, well, what does that even look like? What does returning look like? Hosea says, as he's counseling, well, you don't go back into the end. There are many husbands who kind of screwed their way and they didn't come back into the end. They came back with edible arrangements, they came back with flowers, they came back with all sorts of things to smooth life over. But Hosea doesn't say come back with an edible arrangement. He doesn't say come back with flowers. He says take a few words. 
Take with you words and return to the Lord. This is like he's saying, look, this isn't a flippant thing. This isn't a thing of happenstance. But as you come to grips with how your sin has grieved the heart of God, you turn to him. You return to him and thoughtfully come to him, not just sort of like flippantly saying things like, okay, God is good, God is good all the time. He always forgives. I mean, after all the song said, great is your faithfulness, oh God, to me, right? So if I come to him, he's going to be faithful and just to forgive me. And Hosea, he says, take words with you. He said, don't come flippantly. Come with open hearted honesty. And as you come with open hearted honesty, remember what Hosea has already said. Remember what the scriptures have already said concerning what the Lord is looking for. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He's saying, I am looking for. Steadfast love, that is to say, that covenant-keeping love that has said. The knowledge of God there means that he's looking for them to acknowledge God. They've been living as if God was a non-entity. They were living as if there was a certain weightlessness to God. They were living like God could be pushed off into the margins. And uh, Hosea saying that must be done completely differently. Coming to grips with the reality that you dug a hole for yourself and have fallen into it. That's the picture of sin. See your sin for what it is. Hosea gives us another picture of what sin is here. As he's saying, take away all iniquity. These are the words that he's taking to him. The picture there of take away, the words, the Hebrew word literally means to lift up. So as to say, your sin has become a burden. Anybody familiar with Pilgrim's Progress? Remember here, carrying the burdens back. Your sin has become a crushing burden. And you cannot remove it. So the words that you're looking to take to God is to say, Lord, lift this up off of me. It's crushing me. In and of myself, I can do nothing. I need you, God. I need you. Sin has become a crushing weight on the shoulders of the sinner. And as Hosea leads the people of God to use these particular words, take away all iniquity, he's leading them to see that a radical transformation must take place. He's helping them to realize that God is not saying, you've got a burden on your back, You've got X number of sins. You get it off your back and then we'll talk. You clean yourself up and we'll talk. It's absolutely impossible. Let me help you with this. The standard of the Lord is too high 
for us to think that we can make ourselves clean and acceptable to Him. It's just not going to work. And so Hosea says you need to appeal to God. It's like David in Psalm 51, verse 7, that says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Take it away, God. Lift it up. I need you. Then he says something puzzling here that is translated various ways. It says, take away all iniquity, accept what is good. Some translate that to say, oh, good one, accept me or accept us. Or they say it means uh, it should be rendered graciously accept us. But that doesn't fit really the the tenor of the verse. It's not an adjective. The word good there is not an adjective describing God or an adverb describing his actions, graciously this, you're the good God. But instead it's given us a description of the open-hearted way that the penitent one comes to God. He's saying, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, accept what is sincere. As I lay open and bare my heart to you, accept it, O oh God. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Accept it, O oh God. And then that kind of flows into what he has to say next. As he depicts repentance as an obligation, something that he owes to God, as he says, and we will pay the bulls our vows. And then he depicts uh, repentance as an act of worship. As he talks about these bulls he will pay, as depicting a situation where he would be bringing to the offering table his sacrificial bull. Lord, I owe you this. I owe you an open-hearted apology. Laying it bare. This is how Hosea is describing and depicting for them repentance. Another dimension of repentance is a certain exclusivity of one's heart affiliation. No longer could they say, well, we have options on the table here. We can look to other saviors to deliver us. We can look to Egypt. We can look to Assyria. We can look to our resources. No, repentance looks like this. There is no other savior. That's why it says Assyria will not save us. Our resources will not save us. He says we will not ride on horses if you don't associate that with uh, some trust in horses, some trust, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord. Psalm 20, verse 7. They're saying the resources that we have will not save us. Government powers and alliances will not 
you come back to God. That's how, that's what repentance looks like. And the hearing counsel is probably a bit of a reluctance here. Because what would it look like from God's perspective? If I mess up with a friend, if I mess, with, mess up with my kids, if I mess up with my wife, there's a little reluctance there. I need to build that trust back up. The room doesn't immediately get warm again. At least not immediately. Because they're working through it. Hosea chapter 14, verses 4 and following, depicts something different concerning how God receives us when we repent. I mean, when you look at verses 4 through 8, it gives us this descriptive language and picture, pictures of blossoms and groves and, and beautiful fragrance and, and all, all sorts of beautiful uh, things. The Lord at the outset of verse 4, because we, verses 1 through 3 is the prophet speaking. Verses 4 through 8 is, we move, I'm sorry, let me say it this way. Verses 1 through 3 is prophetic speech. It depicts it as if prophet was speaking. Verses 4 through 8 is divine speech. It frames it all in the first person uh, pronouns so as to give us a sense that God himself is speaking. And so God says, I will heal their apostasy. I will heal them from them turning away from me. Immediately as they repent, that's what you're going to do. But not only that, God says, I will love them freely. The word that freely means that he'll love them spontaneously, generously, overwhelmingly. The Lord welcomes his people back with open arms, saying, I love you. And I don't know, man, this, this, this sometimes feels like a struggle in the midst of our walk. I mean, you sin, you feel the shame of your sin, and then it feels a little weird coming back. And so you, you say back as if you're not worthy. Well, newsflash, we never were worthy. And God is saying to Hosea and, and his recipients of this message, and he's saying to us, at no point should you hesitate in your repentance. The Lord is saying, come back. Come back. I'm leaving the light on. Come back. Like, like the prodigal son, he's the father who runs to the prodigal. Come back. And then you think, well, does that mean that he's glossing over sin? He's not thinking much of their sin? He's just kind of brushing it, up, brushing it under the rug? No. Not at all. It's implied here in the text that how their sin is dealt with it's implied in the words, for my anger has turned from them. There's a theological word that we find popping up multiple times in the New 
Testament, and that we see actually fleshed out or illustrated for us in the old. This is the word propitiation. This is a word that means sacrifice that turns aside wrath. How is God able to turn aside his anger and receive them back to himself? The weight of their sin fell on another. As we come in repentance to God, we find, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that God the Father made him, God the Son, to be sent, the one who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. We're reminded of Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. That Christ canceled the record of death that stood against us in his legal demands, nailing it to his cross. We're reminded of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, that he himself bore our sins in his body on a tree, that we might live to God. And so as we are overwhelmed, A picture of sin that overrides the book of Hosea. We need to be even more overwhelmed by the glorious picture of restoration and return that we see in chapter 14. The overwhelming picture of God saying, I will freely, spontaneously, and generously love you as he calls them to repentance. Verse 9 ends out almost as um, as, a, as, a, as a summation, not just of the chapter, but, in, but of the entire book. When I read verse 9, it almost sounds to me like he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen to it. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. These words actually echo what we find in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 6. Covenant language, calling people of God to remember the covenant relationship with God and calling them to have ears to hear, to hear the overtures that God continues to extend, the overtures of repentance, restoration, and renewal. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray, Father, that It encourages the hearts of your people. That it strengthens all of us in our times of falling down. Lord, I ask that you would take this word and seal it to our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.